If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, and if not, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, turn to Colossians chapter 3 with me. Colossians chapter 3 will be in verses 1 through 4 this morning. And as you notice, I'm not Jason, so be praying for him as he's just feeling a little under the weather, feeling sick, um, and I'm doing a standalone here, and we'll return to 2 Timothy next week. So Colossians chapter 3, page 984, if you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you. And we'll be going through verses 1 through 4 this morning. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is the word of the living God. May we not leave without being changed. So as you just heard, the Greece team arrived on Saturday in Greece. Uh, Adam and I both didn't know that because we heard from John or anyone else, but because all of you apparently know and throw it on Facebook. That's how we found out. And... I want to use a little illustration as we think about that, all right? The, that plane that they were in, regardless of the, if they showed up or not, was going to take off. The people there were going to get the benefits of lots of leg room and wonderful cuisine. No, as we know, that's not true. And they were going to land and, dep- and arrive in Athens, Greece, regardless if the Greece team showed up or not. The way you know if they showed up there is by asking the pivotal question, did they get in the plane? Did they get in the plane? And there's this glorious doctrine called the doctrine of our union with Christ. And please don't look into the illustration. I'm not trying to say Jesus is your pilot. What I'm trying to say here is the pivotal question we need to ask is, are we in Christ? Are we in Christ? And when you're in Jesus Christ, He has secured your down payment. He is indwelling with you and empowering you and molding you more into the image of your Son and you receive all of the benefits of His cross work and the guarantee that you will arrive with Him in glory when He comes again and live with Him forever. But all of that pivots on if We are in Christ. So what I want us to understand today in the midst of this life is I want us to see and understand the work of Jesus in the past, present, and future. You could throw this up as a main point. Understanding the work of Jesus in the past, present, and future will help us to see Jesus clearly and therefore follow hard after Him. So understanding the work of Jesus in the past, present, and future will help us to see Jesus clearly and follow hard after Him. And I'll kind of have four movements that I'll identify in this text, and I'll try to make those clear for you. And it regards all around His past, His present, His future work, and you'll see how His past work, what He accomplished at Calvary, fuels this command that Paul gives, and then these present and future work that he lays out will help compel us to continue to follow hard after Jesus. 
So here's my first point here, located in verse 1, is that, and that is this. We are united with Christ as a new person. We are united with Christ as a new person because of what he accomplished in the past. We are united with Christ as a new person because of what he accomplished in the past. Look down with me at verse 1. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ. So we see this if word, and we might think that this is Paul kind of saying, all right, this is something you need to examine yourselves of. All of us as believers, 2 Corinthians 13.5 talks about how we are to test and examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. All true believers do this. And the way that we do that is not by looking to our own efforts, but by looking back to the finished work of Christ and placing our faith in that. But I don't think, I think the Greek and the way that this is communicated is, is something more definitive. That Paul knows he's speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ and he wants them to possess assurance of their newfound identity in Jesus. So I think this could be tra- translated as since. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. This is true of you, believer. You are trusting in Jesus. You have been raised with Christ. But what does this mean? And this goes back to this idea of our union with Christ, that we have been unified with Him in His work by the means of faith. Now, our old self, which Paul talks about further down, our old identity, all of us, when we are born, are born into sin. The Bible describes us as those who are futile in our thinking, that we have foolish hearts that are darkened, that we have no desire to seek for God, that we are children of wrath, meaning that God's just anger and wrath is pointed on us because of our sin, and we are deserving of that. Titus describes us as hated by others and hating one another. But you have been raised with Christ, believer. You have been raised with Christ. When we encounter the living Jesus, everything about our status with God, our relationship with God, changes because of his finished work. Now, what does it mean to be raised with Christ, all right? I don't see you guys raising up right now, all right? You're here. So what does that actually mean? And we know that that's going to happen in the future. But what does it mean? Because he's saying that this is a present reality. It actually occurred in the past. Well, I want to kind of point our attention to Romans 6, 1 through 4. And you can turn there and keep your finger in Colossians if you'd like. Romans 6, 1 through 4. Because I think Paul really fleshes out this idea of our union with Christ and what it means for us to be raised with Christ. Paul in Romans 5 is talking all about the awesome grace of our Lord Jesus and how even though we have committed this atrocious sin against God, that as great as our sin is, His grace abounds all the more. And Paul is anticipating a question from the audience. He is anticipating that they may be asking, okay, Paul, well, since I have all this abounding grace, then that must mean I can live a life of sin and be totally cool. I got my get-out-of-hell-free card. I'm good before God because of his abounding grace. And here's how Paul responds to that possible rebuttal in Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, meaning living in sin, that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin 
still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized or immersed into Christ Jesus were baptized or immersed into his death? So in a symbolic sense, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we have died with him. And then we also see we've been raised with him in verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we celebrate baptism, we're celebrating a symbol of what has inwardly happened in our heart through our trust in Jesus, our union with Christ. We are symbolizing that when we trust in Jesus, we have died with Him, our old self, that hated God, that did not want to seek Him whatsoever, and was a child of wrath, was buried with Christ by His atoning sacrifice. We were buried, that old self was buried with Him, and He has raised us up as a new self, as one who is no longer a children of wrath, but a child of grace looked at just as God sees his beloved son we are looked at in that light so that we can be welcomed as a precious son as a precious daughter before our king this is this idea that Paul wants us to understand of our union with Christ that we've been raised with Christ and we are a new person as a result and what we clearly see here is that our union with Christ brings total transformation in our lives as well. Our affections, our desires, our ambitions in life are totally switched from ourself outwardly to King Jesus. And that's what we see here in verses 1 through 2, which brings me to my second point. So this past work um, uh, brings me to my second point, and that is this. Our union with Christ enables and compels us to follow hard after him. Our union with Christ enables and compels us to follow hard after Him. Look down at verse 1 again. Since then, if then, you have been raised with Christ, here's a command now, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When we come to Christ, the things we seek for in life change too. Faith is not just a mere intellectual assent to facts or a mere academic exercise, although it, yes, certainly involves believing the truth, but it is more than that. It brings internal transformation that leads to a desire to follow wholeheartedly with our lives after King Jesus. So what are the things that we're called to seek after? Verse 1, these things that are above. Well, they all revolve around Jesus because look what Paul says. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The best thing about the gospel is not that we get to escape the wrath of God in hell. The best thing about the gospel is not that we get to live in a place with no pain or suffering or death. The best thing about the gospel is we get to be made right with our God and we get Jesus. That is the best thing about the gospel. Thomas Goodwin, Puritan, says this, to me, heaven would be hell without Christ. I hope you believe that. 
When we present the gospel to people, it's good that we ask them if they were to die today, would they go to heaven or hell? And that's a great question to ask. But I hope we get to the fact that believing in the gospel is not about going to heaven or going to hell. It's about being reunited with our Savior, our Lord, our Creator, even though we deserved His eternal judgment. And we will do well to remind ourselves because Jesus is worth it. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven where the king dwells is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found one day and he covered up. And in his joy, he sold all that he had to buy that field. Why? Because Jesus is worth everything and more. Everything and more. And we also see that he is Lord and King. We see this demonstrated here because he's seated at the right hand of God. He rules and he reigns in the midst of a a globe right now where rulers think they have the authority. But it all is ultimately from God. And they are like clay in the hands of the potter. So we need to be concerned with the heart of the King. Jesus tells his disciples, and I know that all of us wrestle with anxiety about the things in this life. He knows that they're even worried about the simple things like food and clothing and shelter. And what he says is seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Meaning, I will provide everything necessary. You seek me first, I'll provide everything necessary you need to continue to seek wholeheartedly after me. So practically, what does it look like to seek the things that are above? To follow hard after Christ. And I think verse 2 gives us more substance to that. Here's what Paul says in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So we're seeing here that Paul is calling us to be active with our minds, with our thinking. This shows us that knowing truth is vitally important in our relationship with God. I love what Pastor Chris says. He says, you want to gaze up at Christ, you must first gaze down at His Word. Because His Word is what reveals to us the character and the greatness of God and the works of Christ and all of those benefits that come from being unified in Him. So I want to ask this question to you. And to myself, does intentional meditation of the Word of God take priority in our lives? Does intentional meditation, study, spending time with the Lord in His Word take priority in your life? I want you to think on that. We're going to come back to it. I want to point out here something that Shai Lin says, Christian hip-hop artist, highly recommend. Um, he says uh, something about this idea of theology and doxology. And many times, you know, I'll talk with people and they'll say, I'm not a theologian. And I understand what they're saying. They're saying in the academic sense, I haven't written in a thousand page systematic theology. All right, none of us here are theologians in that sense. But all of us are called to know and understand more about God. And here's uh, a few verses uh, from one of Shailen's songs. I, I, I can't actually remember what it was called, but it has to do with theology and doxology and you can find it online. Um, but here's what he says. Theology is the study of God and it's very important. He says doxology is an expression of praise to God. You know, we've seen the doxology, those four lines, it's an expression of praise to him. The point here is that all theology should ultimately lead to doxology. If theology doesn't lead to doxology, 
then we've actually missed the point of theology. So if you have theology of doxology, you just have cold, dead orthodoxy, which is horrible, right? On the other side, we have people who say, ugh, forget theology, I just want to praise, all right? But if we have doxology without theology, we actually have idolatry because it's just a random expression of praise, but it's not actually informed by the truth of who God is. My point in sharing that, brothers and sisters, is that the truth of God and immersing ourselves in that is very important. Now, you can have a heart, of, a heart for um, You can study God's word and miss a heart for Christ, but I don't think you can have a heart for Christ without continually immersing yourself in God's word. Because Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer before the Father, right before he's about to be crucified, and he says, Father, sanctify them in the truth, meaning grow them in holiness by the truth. Your word is truth. So it is so important for us to understand more of who our God is by giving intentional time with the Lord in His Word. So I want to ask you this question. What do you set your minds on? Because we're told to set our minds on the things above and then then He says in a negative sense, not on the things that are on earth. And I think a lot of these things we might think of are are bad things, but I think, actually, a lot of these things that we can place as idols in our lives are good things that become the ultimate thing. Paul David Tripp says bad, uh, a lot of times, a bad thing uh, is because it is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. So what are some examples of these things? And let the Spirit lead you, because there's all things we struggle with. Perhaps it is the relationship with your spouse, Perhaps it's human approval and recognition or praise that you want to receive for things that you accomplish rather than giving glory to God. Or perhaps it's expectations you have for your kids and what you imagine a successful life for them is. Perhaps it's your job and how well you perform at your job or your career. And if you're being recognized and approved by the others in your field. Perhaps it's sports or entertainment. Perhaps it's material possessions or money. Or maybe earthly comforts and living a very leisureful and risk-free life. What are some things that you might set your mind on, set your ambition on, that draws you away from an ultimate love for Christ? And here's a better question. How do we prevent ourselves from seeking after the things that are below and continue being focused on seeking the things that are above? Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This shows us an awesome truth about worship, that worship is not just singing songs or not just praying. Worship is us giving of our lives to be used by the King of Kings, the one who is worthy of our very lives. And how do we do this in an effective way, present our lives to God? He says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, meaning continually influenced by the world's evil, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds by constantly renewing your minds by the truths of Scripture, by the truths of His Word. So I ask you again, what priority do you give daily meditation 
in God's Word. I encourage you, spend daily time with the Lord. Spend daily time with the Lord. Make it a point. When you have a good friendship with someone or or you're married, you make time to spend with your spouse or your friends. So it should be even more important in our relationship with God. Whether that's right when you wake up in the morning and seeking to be satisfied by steadfast love right there then or times before you go to bed or maybe at dinner, set intentional time that you don't compromise on before the Lord. I also realize though that I'm not a person who has kids and what I'm hearing is that that makes it harder. I can understand that. And don't be legalistic on yourself. Know that God is with you always. He is near. You can meditate on His Word and His truths too as you go about your day. Whether that's by keeping a flashcard with you that might have truths of Scripture there um, or it's by listening to audio Bible as you're in the car. I know people that spend a lot of time with the Lord as they have long commutes. Don't be legalistic about this either, all right? I know that I can go into this tendency where if I miss my time with the Lord in the morning, I like throw myself in this spiritual time out and I act like God is angry with me and doesn't want me to pursue him at all for the rest of the day because I miss the morning. And that's not what he's like. He's not like the guy you missed a breakfast appointment with and then is mad at you for the rest of the day because of it. The Lord Jesus wants us to come to him. So make this a priority in your lives because if you don't, if we don't, we will not grow in godliness. We will not grow in our relationship with God. And we will miss out on seeing Him exalted in our lives and through us. So our union with Christ enables and compels us to follow hard after Him. Now for my third point. What will encourage us to follow hard after Jesus as we Um, do this is understanding his present and his future work. Understanding what he's doing right now and in the future. And here's my third point. Christ's present work, Christ's present work keeps us secure in him as we follow hard after him. Christ's present work keeps us secure in him as we follow hard after him. Look at verse 3. For you have died. For you have died. Let me ask a question. How many of you guys struggle with sin? Okay. Some people didn't raise their hand, so I'll take it either you're perfect, but since that's unbiblical, that you're a liar. I'm sure if we were all honest, we struggle and wrestle and battle with sin in this life. But this is an encouraging note for us. That we're not defined anymore by the sin that we might still wrestle with in the flesh. We're defined by our newfound faith in Jesus and the fact that He has crucified our old self. We have died with Him. And that sin no longer has dominion over you, believer. You can have victory over it through the power of Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice. Romans 6.11, after Paul continues to expound on that wonderful passage that talked about our union with Christ that I referenced earlier, he says this, as a result of all of these truths, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Get people that will remind you of that as you battle with sin. People that will ask serious questions of you and take that sin seriously in your life, but will also, in the midst of taking that sin seriously, point you to the reality of your union with Christ. That sin does not have dominion over you because Christ is in you. This is a present reality for us. So as you follow hard after King Jesus, know that there are no earthly schemes or rituals that will help you in your battle and struggle against sin. Paul, in the previous chapter, talks about how uh, many of the people of Colossae were being influenced by some of these different things, asceticism being one example, and asceticism essentially physically beating yourself when you fall as a way to stop the indulgences of the flesh. But what Paul says is they have no value of doing that because it's a heart issue. So know that if there is anything that you're following after, whether it's something that's legalism and setting certain things for yourself, that it's good for us to, to, to as Jesus says, to, to take one of our eyes out, meaning take preventative measures, but if we're not rooting that in our relationship with Christ, if we're not constantly going back to Him and depending on Him, anything else we do to battle sin will be useless because only through the power of Christ can we do that. And I'd say this too, as someone who struggles with, um, you know, when falling to sin, feeling as if God is just angry or mad at me, I think there's something really comforting here in what he says in verse 3. So we see that he says, for you have died. What else does he say? And he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm going to flesh this out a bit. What does it mean for our lives to be hidden with Christ and God? Well, to, to be clear on what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you won't go through physical suffering or emotional suffering in this life. We're told by Jesus, uh, through Paul in Philippians 1, that it has not only been granted that we believe in him, but that we also suffer for his sake. Part of union with Christ means that we also identify in his sufferings as well. It also does not mean that we can't be harmed by others in a physical sense. When Paul is speaking to Timothy, we'll cover this in a few weeks, you'll see that he tells him all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because in Ephesus at the time, in the tyranny of Rome, anyone that desired to live as a faithful Christian was going to experience some form of persecution. So it doesn't mean those things, but here's what it does mean. It means, brother and sister, no one can snatch you out of the hands of King Jesus. No one can snatch you out of his hands. He is greater than all. This idea of being hidden in Christ has a connotation of something that you really hold valuable, all right, whether that be a will or whether that be a passport, uh, which I should really probably hold in a safer place than I do. Um, you you stuck, stick it away somewhere where it's safe and it's secure. And ultimately, a safe can still be broken into in some measure, but nothing can break into our union with Christ. Nothing. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8, 38 through 39. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else, insert it, fill in the blank, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our relationship is secure in Him. And this doesn't lead us to live as, as that uh, person in Romans 6 might be saying, oh, I continue to live in sin, but it compels us to follow hard after Him. 
And I know some of you guys are going through cancer. Some of you have marriages that are under attack and are struggling right now. Some of you who are godly are trying to teach your, way, your kids in the way they should go and they seem to just be wayward and following after their own devices. Some of us may be having struggles at work with coworkers. The list could go on and on. You can fill that in with what you're going through. You might be feeling under attack from the devil or discouraged because of what we're wrestling through. And I want to encourage you, Christ is near to you in that. Christ is near to you in that. I think also implied here with our lives being hidden with Christ is that the heart of Christ towards you is gentle and it is lowly. I just read through the book, Gentle and Lowly, um, and it was such a profound book that helped reorient that. Uh, many times I can think like God is wagging his finger at me or is hitting me on the wrist when I fall and struggle with sin. And to be clear, he does hate sin. But when we draw near to him with that sin, he is so near to us. He died for it. He paid the price already. There's nothing to be afraid of from King Jesus if you're in him. I encourage you too, if you want to read a Puritan that speaks even deeper, they just write so great, the Puritans. Thomas Goodwin wrote a book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And, and both that and Gentle and Lowly just talk about that even in the midst of our suffering and our battle of sin, Christ is near to us. So brother or sister, if you are, are battling sin and you're feeling discouraged right now, I just want to point you to a scriptural example. In Luke chapter 5, Peter and some of the other disciples who were yet to be called were in the boat. They were trying to catch fish. They were having an awful day. So Jesus comes by towards the end of the day and just this man, they don't recognize it. Jesus says, hey, cast your net out on the other side. And it's like, who is this guy? And begrudgingly, they agree to do that. And it is more than the nets and the boat can handle. And then here comes classic Peter, just sprints out of the boat, running onto the shore. And a really just unexpected way of responding. He thought he might hug him or something. He falls flat on his face, on his knees, and he says to Jesus, Woe is me, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And he recognizes exactly who he's in the presence of, the Holy One of God, the Messiah. And Jesus responds so gently, Do not be afraid, for I will make you a fisher of man. Jesus doesn't cast him aside in the midst of his sin. Peter is honest about it. He confesses it. We know that Peter will continue to struggle. And yet Jesus is so near and gentle with him. Be encouraged, believer, as you wrestle with sin and as you're honest with God about it and honest to others in your life that are close, that he is near to you. And if you're in the midst of some type of suffering that's not a result of sin, Know that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. And we need to be reminded of this. So I'd encourage if you don't have close people in your life that are going to be with you in that, find those people. Pray to God for those people. We need to be reminded of this reality. So not only do we have the comfort of knowing we are secure in Jesus as we follow hard after him, 
But we have hope in the reality that we will one day see him and reign with him and it will all be worth it. This is my last point here. Christ's future work gives us hope that following hard after him is exceedingly worth it. Christ's future work gives us hope that following hard after him is exceedingly worth it. Look with me at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, I love that statement. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life. My brothers and sisters, Christianity is not a killjoy. It is the source to real joy that is only found in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the fountain of living waters, the one who came to the woman at the well and said, you're looking for water that is not going to satisfy. You'll be thirsty again, but I will give you living water where you will never have to thirst again. There is no greater joy than King Jesus. Do you get thrilled about him? Are you alive to him? Psalm 73 verse 25 talks about Asaph and his journey through watching the wicked, struggling with, with, with watching them as they're prospering and doing well. And he's over here following God and he's not in the same status as they are. And he wonders if his following over Yahweh has been in vain. Then it says that he took time to sit down, meditate on God, and then he realized their end versus his end because he had faith in Yahweh. And he said this in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. It's not just something that we look off into the future and be like, well, that'll be great when it happens, but this sucks right now. No, what it means is, is that Christ is greater than anything on this earth now. And he is able to satisfy us in this life. Do you guys find it hard to follow after Jesus? Anyone? Come on. Any more liars? No, just, just kidding. A good illustration, and I share this at Fernando's send-off, um, and I think it just works really well. So a lot of you know it. We were at Yosemite National Park in 2020, and uh, we were going on this hike. We wanted to do the El Capitan hike. We were talking about it all week. It's an 18-mile hike. I tell people 20, and the reason I do is because we got off the path a little bit, and I think it ended up being 20, and 20 sounds better than 18, so... Uh, but technically, if you follow the path, it's an 18-mile hike. Still very challenging and awful. And um, <laughs> we, we get like a mile or two in. I don't know why, but I just thought I was like Superman. And I'm like booking it. And Fernando's like, oh my gosh, this is going to be awful for Alex. Um, and we, it was terrible after two miles. I was struggling. Then I hit like second wind after another three miles. And then I, we booked it. And we got to a crossroads to a point where it was two miles away from the top of El Capitan or it was 0.1 miles away from a different overlook. And we had just passed people and it was like three in the afternoon. It was in November. It gets dark by like five. It already took us five hours to get up there and it was icy and snowy. It would have been, it, it would have been awful going down. It was awful going down, but in the present reality. And Fernando's like, we could go back or we could go to this overlook and then go back. And I was like, you know what? No. We came all the way here to go to the top of El Capitan. We are going to do it. And then he knew that was a great mistake for me. 
We go two miles. We get to the top. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. If you want to see pictures, I'll show you them. Then we come back, and oh my goodness, heat exhaustion, absolutely terrible. I was gassed, and I'm whining and complaining. I feel nauseous. I think I slipped like 10 times on the ice coming down. I was moaning. It was terrible. I was totally wiped out. And Fernando, in a very untimely way, teaches me a life lesson. He says, Alex, good things don't come easy. And I said, shut up, Fernando. <laughs> like, dude, not the time. But then as I got down and we finished the hike and I ate food, we talked about that some more. And we were talking about how we both feel this calling to go into missions. And we had just done the Chad survey trip a few months back. And just the reality, following Jesus is not easy, guys. But it is so exceedingly worth it. That El Capitan hike was worth it. It was amazing. Probably the favorite hike I've ever done. Um, following Jesus is worth it. Following Jesus is worth it. Jesus says this. He doesn't, he doesn't hide this from us, that it's going to be hard. He says this. Whoever would seek to gain his life, meaning you want to gain popularity, recognition, you want to gain security and comfort from the pleasures of this world, go ahead. You're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, will find it, will find it. And it is also worth it because, one, we get the greatest treasure in the universe, but two, when Christ who is your life appears, here's the promise, then you also will appear with him in glory. You will appear with him in glory. So my brother or sister, whatever you're suffering with right now, whatever you're battling against, know this. Following hard after Jesus in the midst of that is worth it. And one day, when you're face to face with Christ, those things will not matter because you'll be beholding Him. And that's the best part of the Christian life is this, oh, this glorious reality that one day in glory, as He says here in verse 4, we will see God face to face not as those who have to be afraid of him because we stand justly condemned because of our sin, but as a beloved child of God who will be able to enjoy him and worship him and embrace in his love forever and ever. Remind yourself of that believer and have people that will remind you as you go through this tough journey in life that your union with Christ means you have a guarantee of seeing him again when he appears. And in closing, just want to encourage you with this, based on what we talked about in our union with Christ. Do you doubt your ability to follow after Christ or perhaps experience doubt sometimes as you follow after him? Look to his past work. I had a mentor, Brother Dave Kohler, he's sitting right here. He got it from SLS, so no credit to Dave. Uh, but he always reminded me that when we experience doubt in this life, we don't want to look back to a decision we made or we don't want to look to uh, I'm just... We obviously want to examine our fruit and see if we're, you know, God is impacting and changing our lives. But it is not that that saves us. It's by looking back to the cross of Christ. By looking at the fact that he died, was buried, is risen. And when we trust in him, our salvation is secure in him. So trust that Christ is sufficient. Do you doubt his ability to keep you? Trust that Christ has you secure and he is near to you, brother and sister. And do you doubt it will be worth it? Trust that Christ is worthy in this life and our eternal and joy-filled abode is secure in him through our union with Christ when he comes again. Seek him and may God help us all to see Jesus clearly.